Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. From KQED. Oysters are a controversial food. It is one of those foods that I feel like people shouldn't eat. Every single time it reminds me of being congested and having snot just slide down my throat. I like that moment when you shove your blade into one and just kind of pop it open. It just seems so savage. Especially paired with champagne, outside, a picnic, shucking them yourselves. Nothing better than that. The Bay Area is known for great oysters, but the thing is, you can't really eat oysters out of San Francisco Bay. The local ones you see in restaurants are mostly grown up in Marin County. Our question asker, Joseph Fletcher, heard this wasn't always the case, and that people used to pluck oysters from right out of the Bay. Will oysters ever make a comeback in the Bay and return to the numbers they had back in the days before the gold rush? This week on the show, we're tracing the history of oysters in San Francisco Bay why they're so important to the ecosystem, and how pirates figure into this story. I'm Katrina Schwartz, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Mmm, tastes like the ocean. Mmm. Oh, Yeah. That's KQED reporter Chloe Veltman eating oysters with a couple of friends. So tough, Chloe. So tough, Katrina. What a tough assignment. Um, I eat oysters all the time, but I had actually never tried this type. It's called an Olympia oyster, or Ollie for short. Oh, I've never heard of that kind. What are they like? Well, they're much smaller than the oysters most of us in the Bay Area are familiar with. They taste 
kind of coppery and pungent. And they're special because they are native to the San Francisco Bay. But the oysters you just heard me and my friends guzzling weren't actually harvested from our bay. Scientists say it's still too polluted from agricultural runoff and other chemicals like mercury. Instead, these ollies came from a farm in Washington state. However, for thousands of years, the Olympia oyster grew locally in vast numbers. Three generations back would be safe to say that our family last were gathering oysters from the Bay Shore. East Bay Ohlone chef and food activist Vincent Medina says the ollie was a dietary staple for many local tribes, including his own ancestors. They would be eaten raw. They would also be cooked in earth ovens underneath the ground and eaten with um, sea lettuces and different types of seaweed, acorn soup, delicious meals. Matthew Booker is an environmental historian and has written a book all about the Bay's oysterful past. He says Olympia oysters could be found all along the West Coast. Stretching from Alaska all the way down into central Mexico. Ollies are perfectly adapted to survive the cold waters of San Francisco Bay, but they need rocky surfaces to grow on. Matthew says by the mid-1800s, thousands of years of slow sea level rise and melting Sierra glaciers had made the bay muddier, and that's bad for ollies. They were struggling, basically. Then the gold rush hit and brought thousands of golden protein-hungry settlers. It didn't take long for them to destroy the local ollie population, forcing oystermen to look further afield. All of the estuaries of the West Coast are essentially mined for their oysters to satisfy this endless demand from San Francisco. Matthew says soon even those far-flung habitats had been plundered. There were relatively few ollies left on the entire West Coast, but there was still a demand for them. So entrepreneurs took to importing non-native varieties from the East Coast. You could capture baby oysters, barrel them up, put them on board schooners and later on board unrefrigerated train cars, ship them across the entire United States, and then they would be placed into San Francisco Bay on privately owned tidelands and harvested as a crop. Demand for oysters was so high, pirates frequently raided the oyster beds. Bay Area native Jack London tells us about it in his autobiographical novel, John Barleycorn. The winds of adventure blew the oyster pirate sloops up and down San Francisco Bay. Before London became a famous writer, he was, among other things, an infamous oyster pirate. Every raid on an oyster bed was a felony. The author glamorised his experience of stealing oysters from the bay by night and selling them in the Oakland markets the next morning in several literary works. And behind it all, behind all of me with youth a bubble, whispered romance, adventure. But even the imported oysters didn't survive in the San Francisco Bay for long. The already muddy waters were made worse by mining in the Sierra during the gold rush years, and this churned up more mud and sand that swept downriver to the San Francisco Bay. Historian Matthew Booker says growers moved their Atlantic oysters to the South Bay where mud was less of a problem. But heavy industry and human sewage had polluted the bay waters. A rash of deaths connected to eating contaminated oysters put an end to the San Francisco Bay oyster industry. And so by the early 20th century, there are plenty of oysters in the bay, but the people eating them are no longer so sure if this is the right food. 
In the 1930s, oyster farming resumed in the cleaner waters of Drake's and Tamales Bays, north of San Francisco. But the focus, especially after World War II, was on Pacific oyster varieties from Japan. Interest in cultivating the native Olympia oyster as a food source dwindled. It still hasn't really come back. So will we ever be able to eat the native ollie out of the bay again? Even though no oysters are grown in San Francisco Bay for food now, there are efforts to bring them back to help restore the bay's delicate ecosystem. And ecologists are focused on the native ollie that once thrived here. Oh, you haven't? Have you never been? I meet our question asker, Joseph Fletcher, at the Bay Natives Plant Nursery in the Bayview to interview Linda Hunter. She's the founder and director of the Wild Oyster Project. Oysters have so many wonderful benefits. Linda tells us oysters have superpowers. So one grown oyster can filter 50 gallons of water a day. Oysters help maintain the balance of a marine ecosystem by reducing excess algae and sediment that can contribute to low oxygen levels, causing other marine life to die. There's also the fact that oysters provide habitat for other critters. Oysters cluster on discarded shells, rocks, piers and other hard submerged surfaces. They fuse together as they grow, forming these rock-like reefs that make ideal homes for other marine animals and plants. Linda says these reefs protect coastal lands by reducing the impact of storm waves. It's been proven that oyster reefs attenuate the effects of rising tides caused by climate change. The Wild Oyster Project is trying to rebuild these oyster reefs. That work starts with collecting discarded oyster shells from local restaurants and piling them up at partner sites like Bay Natives. This is a lot of oysters. Is it just oyster shells? Is it just like any sort of... You'll see there's some clam shells in here. Linda says eventually these shells will be built into reefs and placed in the bay. The idea is for these man-made reefs to attract native oysters and, as a result, other wildlife like eelgrass, salmon, crabs, egrets. Linda says they've already installed reefs near Alameda and Point Pinole. The first oyster reef we built at Point Pinole in Richmond, I got a phone call from a fisherman who was complaining that his fishing line had been snagged on one of our reef balls. And I said, hmm, have you noticed more fish? And he said, yes, I have. Thank you very much. (laughs) But before they can be turned into reefs, the oyster shells need to be cleaned. And that's where the chickens come in. Bay Natives is home to about two dozen chickens. This is the chicken lounge. If there's not chickens, you have to clean the shell. Otherwise, they get stinky and they attract all kinds of critters. Should we feed the chickens? Let's do it. After the shells are cleaned, they're laid out in the sun. And several years later, they'll be ready to use in an oyster reef. This curing process helps kill any harmful bacteria and hardens the shells. We have plenty of cured shell. We have over 10,000 pounds here. Linda tells Joseph the project has been relying more heavily on individual oyster eaters recently since COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders have shut down many local restaurants. We are encouraging people to save their own trucks, bring them by one of the sites, now you know what to do, just dump them in the lounge. Next time I'll head up to a Tamales Bay Oyster Company, get a 50-pack, I'll drop them off.
So we've learned what happened to oysters in the bay and efforts to bring them back. But what about the last part of Joseph's question? Will the bay's oyster population ever be restored to pre-gold rush levels? I think we're so far below where we were historically, as long as we sort of just increase the populations, we're moving in the right direction. Ted Grossholtz is an ecologist at UC Davis who studies marine biodiversity. He says it's an uphill struggle because of climate change. Rising air temperatures, especially in the warmer months, can be fatal to oysters exposed on reefs for hours at a time. He's also worried about the heavy rainfalls we've been getting on and off in recent years. Rain increases runoff into the bay and lowers the salinity to levels that kill oysters. We lost basically every oyster in the place two years ago, to that big, huge rain and the atmospheric rivers that came along with it. Despite the setbacks, he says oyster restoration is crucial. It's not just restoring one species, it's restoring all the species that oysters support. Before we got this question, I honestly never thought much about whether oysters grow in the bay. It's cool that they're starting to make a comeback, but I gotta know, Chloe, am I going to be able to eat oysters out of the San Francisco Bay anytime soon? Well, Katrina, uh, the scientists I spoke with told me it could be at least 50 years before the bay is clean enough that we could eat oysters out of it safely once again. 50 years? That's a long time. Yeah, that's a really long time. I'm just hoping I'll still be around for the day when that's possible. Me too. Well, thank you for your reporting, Chloe. Yeah, you're welcome. It was fun. Thanks, Katrina. There's still time to send us your story about how the past year living with the coronavirus pandemic has changed your life. Come on, how has my life not changed? The way that I communicate, the way that I look at the sky, the way that I interact with people, you know, handshakes or now elbow dabs. Maybe a little something like this. Mic check, check one, are we here right now? My name is Pendarvis Harshaw and I'm the host of Right Now. The one area that hasn't necessarily changed, but has grown, has been in terms of parenting. It's been fascinating to see this evolution of the interaction that my daughter and I have. I've tried to develop a schedule, you know, because that's what we learned in school. And then I quickly learned that we're gonna have to pretty much deviate from the schedule every day because life happens and life is school. And that's the driving like narrative that I've learned through this whole thing is that life is school. We can use a parking lot as a teaching mechanism or we can go for a walk and it can be a science excursion. Um, Trips to go play soccer often turn into conversations about math and it's it's fun. It's fascinating. She teaches me a lot especially in terms of patience and I'm very fortunate to have spent this time you know because in any other instance I would not have had this amount of intimate time with uh, my child. So yeah that's how I've grown. When you reflect on this past year, what are you taking with you into the future? How did you grow? Did you make an unexpected new friend? Or jump into something new? We want to know. Record yourself on your smartphone and email us the file. The address is baycurious at kqed.org. Or call and leave us a message at 415-553-3334. Bay Curious is made by Susie Racho, Katie McMurrin, and me, Katrina Schwartz. Our show is a production of member-supported KQED in San Francisco. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? 
Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.